Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the privilege of speaking with Sue Falsoni. It's not easy to simply put into words the accomplishments of this amazing woman. She's a physiotherapist, athletic trainer, manual therapist, strength and conditioning coach, teacher and entrepreneur, all wrapped up in one powerful package. She is a pioneer in human performance, having been the first woman ever to work as a head athletic trainer for any major league sports team in North America, having served for the LA Dodgers in Major League Baseball. She was one of the original team that formed Athletes Performance, now known as Exos, under the stewardship of Mark Verstegen. She served as head of athletic training and sport performance with the U.S. men's national soccer team. Her personal business structure and function as a consulting and education business for healthcare clinicians, as well as a consulting company serving athletes. The reason I've asked Sue on Leave Your Mark today is because she is an innovator and a quality human being. She has dedicated her life to helping people achieve their goals and her recent groundbreaking project, her book, Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance, is not only a subject of particular interest to me, but one that serves to drive change in the industry of human performance. She's indeed leaving her own mark, and I am honored to have her on the show today. Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great intro. Thank you. So I'm going to start with, uh, I noticed on LinkedIn with you that you're a wine gal. So are you red or white? <laughs> oh, I don't see color with that. I can <laughs> <laughs> Are you a cab Pinot? Do you I like know. It so depends on, um, it so depends on the time of day, which I know sounds crazy. Uh, the weather outside, if I'm eating, uh, you know, I like it all. I like whites, rosés, reds. I like Pinots. I like big, heavy cabs. I like awesome. Italian varietals. Those are my favorite too. So yeah, a little bit of everything. Where did you find your um, affinity for wine? You know, it really started when I was with baseball um, because, you know, we got to travel a lot and a lot of times you'd be out to dinner and um, guys would buy some really amazing wine. And one time um, uh, we were in San Francisco and uh, one of the pitchers, they were kind of having a little outing and they invited me to go along and it was at this wine place. And I mean, we just drank some unbelievable, amazing bottles of wine that I would have never had access to uh, before that. So um, yeah, it, it was just an amazing night of awesome wine. And so from there, it just sort of flowed. So, but yeah, I remember that night very vividly. <laughs> I have pretty much the same story as you. I didn't drink wine until I was in my mid thirties and discovered it well in the NHL and you're and again you're connecting with some of the best wines in the world and you, sometimes you're looking at the bottle and you go somebody tells you it's worth you know x number of dollars and you're just like wow when I was in college I was lucky to spend 15 bucks on a bottle of wine <laughs> I know just like unbelievable right you just start to kind of yeah open your palate and open your experience and you know and then I'm such a geek right like I have to turn everything into school so because wine is so geeky right like how it's grown and how far apart they plant the vines and the soil and the weather. And so then I started taking classes. Like I've taken a few song classes and I've taken my level one um, class for the International Wine and Spirits Guild. And then I took the Italian Wine Professional um, course, which I did not pass the exam because you need an 85 and I only could get a 75 was the highest I could get. Um, so yeah, but I like totally geek out and like even make drinking wine like I'm such a dork. <laughs> 
So when, you're, <laughs> when you're out with your friends, do they just hand you the wine list to go, you pick, Sue? <laughs> a lot of times they do. And I always tell people, you've got to give me a color and you've got to give me a price point. And if you don't give me those two things, then I'm not picking the wine. Or I'm buying, like one of the two. Like I'm happy to buy it if I'm, if I'm buying the wine. So those are my three stipulations. <laughs> That's beautiful. You um, grew up in um, where in the United States? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, New York. <clears throat> so what was that uh, life like as you grew up? Were you uh, a sports girl? Like, what was your affinity for sports? What connected you to sports? Were you a sports girl? Or what, what was your life yeah. like as you grew up? You know, I was never a really good athlete, which is really kind of funny. I grew up, I loved swimming. And I know that sounds crazy being from Buffalo because there's not a lot of time outside in the pool. But um, we would always go to the public pool and they had synchronized swim classes. And so I would go, I mean, I was just a swimmer. And so I started synchronized swimming when I was seven. And I actually was a synchronized swimmer until I was 14. And I was actually pretty darn good. And, and I tried out for this team and they traveled nationally and they sort of did all this stuff. And my mom would not let me try out until I was in high school. So she's like, okay, when you get to high school, you can try out. So I tried out the summer after eighth grade made the team. I was so excited. And then I got to high school and I was like, oh, I want to join the soccer team and I want to be in the drama club and I want to be on student council. And my mom said, nah, like you just made this team and you're going to be traveling every weekend and you're going to be practicing three nights a week. And I said, I was like, oh man. And so I ended up quitting before even the first practice started, which is terrible. It's like my one life. I don't have many life regrets, but that is one of my life regrets, but not even because I got to do some really awesome stuff in high school. And so, so I quit and then um, started doing other stuff. But I mean, as we know, right, like some really major things are developed from the age of eight to 14, when you're talking about balance and proprioception and eye-hand coordination and like all of these just general skills, right? So I spent my life in a pool and never developed. I swear I don't have any fast twitch muscle fibers. Um, so I am just a terrible athlete. So I played JV soccer and then I got, you know, most improved player and I ran track and I did long, um, high jump and I let my knees drop and I broke my nose. And, um, yeah, I was just a horrible, horrible athlete. And so when I, when I started coaching Luke Richardson, who, um, is the head of performance for, um, Houston Texans, he said, Sue, I'm going to give you the key to coaching. He goes, you need to be able to do three reps of everything to one side. And I'm like, all right. So I really, I worked with him really hard when we were at Athletes Performance and I got really good at movements, three, three reps to one side. And when you watch me teach or coach, yeah. you'll see me. I always walk back and then I repeat it because I'm giving away my secret. <laughs> <laughs> That's my personal rule of thumb. I'm going to retire when I can't do two reps anymore of, of anything. Yep. That I do. That's all you got to do. <laughs> it sounds like what you said earlier about education, like was education a big part of for you life? You liked school when you were growing up? Yeah, I was always a school nerd, you know, I just totally loved it and was and was, you know, and excelled at school and, you know, was good at it and just really always enjoyed learning and kind of that learning process. And so, um, you know, obviously, you need to be interested in the subject, there were clearly subjects that didn't resonate as well with me as others. But you know, that goes with everything. And then, you know, now once you become an adult learner, it's great because you can choose what you get to study. And so, but yeah, learning, learning, I think has always been such a huge part of, of 
what I do. And I think that the teachers that I've had have really influenced me in my life. And I think that's why maybe I'm so passionate about teaching now is because I just remember what those teachers did for me and those professors did for me. And so, you know, to be able to do that now to, for other people is, is pretty cool. Who was one of your most uh, influential high school teachers and why? Oh my goodness. Most influential high school teachers. Gosh, I haven't thought about my high school teachers in a while. Um, There were so many of them. There was Mrs. Whalen, who I absolutely loved. She um, taught um, English and Mrs. Thomas, who taught French, and then Mr. Felgis, who taught our English stuff. And they were all so wonderful. They just all had really these individual amazing personalities. They were a little quirky, uh, which I think I'm a little quirky. So I think that resonated, right? Like the fact that they were who they were and they were able to get their message across. And it wasn't like they were just, not that you can't be a good effect. Like if your personality is kind of neutral, then that's your personality. That's cool. But you know, they, all three of them were um, just a little, they just had a little personality to him mm-hmm. and a little quirk to him and, and that all that kind of resonated with me that's nice yeah um do you, do you have a, a fond memory of somebody in in university that really uh sort of dr- connected with you or got, helped you sort of find your way as a, as a university student yeah yeah so when i was um at damon college uh, michael brogan was um uh, uh one of our professors he's now the de- i think the department chair uh there now but um i really wanted to do orthopedics and so i really really resonated um with the subjects that he taught and so i really liked that class and then he always brought in these different adjunct professors to sort of guest lecture and i just thought those guest lecturers were so cool and i sadly can't remember some of their names but um i just thought like oh my, and my friend actually emailed me she goes do you remember when you leaned over to me during class one day and was like, I want to do something great like that one day, like to be able to adjunct and to guest lecture, I just thought was so cool. And so, you know, those people um, really resonated, like the fact that they were out in the field working, and then that they came back to class to sort of educate us. And so, you know, then I got the opportunity to go back to Damon College and give a guest lecture. And I was like, so honored to be able to do that. That was pretty, that was pretty cool for me. That must have been a nice feeling. Yeah, for sure. What do you see as the difference between teaching and coaching now that you do both or that you got into both? Yeah, you know, not, there's really not a whole heck of a lot of difference. I mean, coaching definitely is teaching, right? We're teaching our our patients and our athletes how to move and so, or how to move again, right? Because if there's been an injury to sort of relearn movements that used to be very, very natural to them. So it's really just a matter of whether you're teaching lecture stuff or you're teaching lab-based stuff or you're, you're coaching, it's all the same thing, right? You're trying to get a message across to a person and, and everybody learns differently. Some people are really kinesthetic. Some people are, are real visual. Some people are really auditory. And so you have to really kind of figure out what way someone learns best and then to be able to um, kind of really enhance your message through that sense, you know, that sensory system that, that they work best through, um, I think is, is really cool. So I, I, think, they're, I think they're the same. Hmm. What did you fall in love with first, the, the, the therapeutic side of who you are or the, the coaching side of who, who you are? Yeah, definitely the therapeutic side was first for me. You know, when I was in high school, I really thought I would go on to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so at the time, physical therapy was an undergraduate degree. So um, definitely showing my age there. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, all right, I'm going to, because I had to go to physical therapy and I thought it was cool. And so I thought, all right, I'll do physical therapy, but 
I'm probably going to go on to medical school because I thought I didn't want to do a biology degree or something like that. So, um, but once I got into physical therapy school, I, I was like, this is really awesome. And the more I worked with surgeons, like as a student, um, the more I realized they didn't get to do what I enjoyed, which was creating relationships with the patient and mm -hmm. kind of helping them through that entire process. And so I really switched gears and I never even took the MCATs. I never even applied to med medical school. Like once I got to PT school, I was all in. And then once I got my first PT job, I worked with an athletic trainer. Um, her name was Karen Tanner. Um, and, um, she, she was really, really inspiring and really cool and um, really just an amazing clinician. And I didn't even know what an athletic trainer was. I'm like, what is an athletic trainer? So she's the one who really taught me all about it. And she's the one who told me about the double major program that University of North Carolina had at the time. Um, and so she's like, yeah, you should call Bill, you know, Bill Prentice directs the program there. You should give him a call. And so like, I, this was in 2000, I think. And I, call his office and he answers, which that would never happen in this day and age. Um, and he answers the phone and I don't even know who he is, right? And come to find out, he literally wrote like the athletic training Bible. So um, I talked with him about their program and he encouraged me to apply and I did. And they took one person in this double major program and, you know, somehow I, I got that um, got that spot, which was amazing. And so then I went back to athletic training school and, and got the master's in human movement science. And so, you know, definitely the therapeutic side of the house was where I really enjoyed. I started to do some personal training in college for some extra cash. Um, <laughs> and so thought it was interesting. And then when I got out to, um, to, um, Arizona, randomly read an article about Anomar Garcia Para and where he was training. And so totally cold called um, athletes performance just showed up on the door and um, volunteered there for a while and realized like what the strength and conditioning world was, was so different from my experiences as a personal trainer. And so once I, I got that job and spent a lot of time there, I just fell in love with strength and conditioning and fell in love with movement coaching. And the more time I hung out with the strength coaches, the better clinician I became. And so it really just rounded out what I was already doing. And it really just took my clinical practice to another level. So even though that sort of strength and conditioning stuff came second, um, it, I felt like it really rounded me out as a professional. It was, um, yeah, really eye-opening. Awesome. I'm going to come back to that a little bit because I want to talk about your book later on. But um, one of the things I'm curious about is that when you kind of construct yourself going back, were you more attracted to the investigative nature of therapy or the touchability of therapy or the human interaction? What, what was it that kind of jazzed you about being a, a physiotherapist and athletic trainer? Yeah, I, for me, I loved the puzzle. I loved trying to figure out not only where someone was hurting, but like why they were hurting. I just love the puzzle. And I think, unfortunately, I got a little bored in general orthopedics. Um, and it, it just kind of be, wasn't very challenging. And so I thought, and I don't, I don't mean to say like general orthopedics is not challenging, but the, the place I was at and where I was practicing, um, it amazing people that place set the tone for my career and I'm so grateful for it. Um, but, but just the puzzle got, the puzzle got easy for me based on the patients that we were constantly seeing. And so once I kind of got into the sports medicine thing and then started doing professional sport, 
the puzzle just got more and more complicated. And, and then at Athletes Performance, people are like, well, I've already seen three physios and they've already done these five techniques. So what do you have? And I was like, oh, okay, now I, I need to have a sixth technique <laughs> that they've never tried before. And I, you know, I need to bring something different to the table. So um, really just started, you know, my, I'm such a con ed junkie. And so really kind of started that path, but it, it, it's really the puzzle. I think the, the figuring out why someone's hurting and how to fix that or how to get them in a different path um, is really what drives me. And it's really, really, really interesting to me. It's interesting uh, listening to you because like uh, we, we have similar pathways and similar thought processes. One of the reasons why I was interested in chatting with you is I think we're sort of very much synergistic in the way that we think. But I'm curious when you look back at your education and this, I'm, I'm often asked this by young people and colleagues and stuff. You're not really taught in physiotherapy school or athletic training school or any of these places really to look around, investigate the why you're more or less taught to use this funnel assessment process to come back into some sort of differential diagnosis and then name that tune. When did you start to really realize that, you know, this was bigger than just going through that process and really understanding why is this person in front of me dealing with this problem? Yeah. You know, I think it was really, it was during my grad school experience um, because unfortunately part of that, the clinic I was at was really busy. I mean, we would see, oh my gosh, 25, 30 patients a day, right? Between me and a a physical therapy assistant. So we were just hopping and I was just trying to like get through the day a lot of times in that scenario. But then when I, when I got to grad school um, and had a little bit more time and was working with a team and really sort of, um, with them, you're spending tons of time with those same 13 people in basketball. You're spending the, this, tons of time with, you know, 60 some odd guys in, in football. Um, and you're, you're with those same people over and over again, and you get to know who they are as people and you get to know who they are. You get to know their families. Um, and then you get to know more about like their past and what has contributed maybe to the injuries that they're experiencing right now. And you begin to put that together in a way that I think prior to that, I wasn't able to put together in a 15 to 30 minute visit with a patient. Mm -hmm. Um, So you really got to develop some amazing relationships. And so that that's one of the things that I love about what I do is, is getting to know the athlete's family that I'm working with and the patient. And so I, I think that's really sort of the first time that I was like, Whoa, this is way bigger than the knee pain that's in front of them. This is the scholarship that they might lose. This is, you know, the going from big fish in a, in a small pond high school to small fish in a big pond in college. And what does that do to someone mentally? And how do they adjust to that? And, and it just, I just started to see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get into athletes performance really at the front end of the curve of that business model. Um, how did you grow as a practitioner during that time in your career? Yeah, it. Um, I think I think I was employee number seven. If I if I'm not employee number seven, I'm close to it. Um, and it's obviously it just grew like crazy. And I think my growth and who I am as a practitioner, um, I completely owe to my time at Athletes Performance um, and at UNC. I mean, my time at UNC was amazing as well. But um, I got to really sort of apply what I learned at UNC at Athletes Performance and the coaches I got to work with there. Um, obviously Mark and Daryl Eto and 
um, Luke Richardson and Brandon Marcello and Roger Scharnhorst um, were just amazing. And, and they um, really took the time because we didn't have that many athletes back in 2001. I mean, there might be days where we had three or four people come through the door. <laughs> so it was great because you know, someone would come in and I would work with them first. Let's say I was working on their ankle and then, you know, Luke or Daryl or whoever the coach was would sit there with me while I did therapy. And we would just talk back and forth with the athlete and with each other about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And then because I didn't have a patient after them, I went with them, right? And we went outside and we did movement prep and we did the movement stuff. And I watched them coach and I watched them, um, do the stuff inside from a, a weight room standpoint and how they, everything really was to improve their movement. Um, and then to sit there in the, in the, we all shared one big gigantic office. So to, to sit there and talk about planning and periodize, um, periodizing what was going on. And um, gosh, I just, my eyes were so open. And then being able to watch football practice and to be able to go out and realize that just because the offensive lineman that I'm working with can do a six inch step up doesn't mean he's good to go and you know, stand across the line and hit another 300 pound human being, you know, <laughs> like really what is that transition? So mm -hmm. to be able to live that transition of literally going from rehab to performance, um, completely shaped who I am as a professional. Not, um, not every practitioner gets to have that, um, Petri dish of opportunity in some sense that, um, that you get to experience that 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 continuous or continuum of reality, and to some degree, I think it's a weakness of the industry, and in that you know we tend to box things in. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to come back to your book later, but I'm you know I commend you for building the book because uh, at the end of the day, the concept of trying to bring that process to people who don't necessarily get to walk it every day is uh, really important. Um, you were there for how many years again? But, um, I was there for 13 years. 13 years. And yeah. when you decided to leave, what, what was the decision-making process for you to, to move on in your life? Uh, it was so hard. Um, you know, at the time I was also, cause during my time there, I got to work with the LA Dodgers. And so, um, you know, I became the head athletic trainer for the LA Dodgers and I was the vice president for athletes performance. And, um, you know, my contract ended with the Dodgers and I knew I didn't want to renew. And, um, I, I also knew in my heart that it was time for me to move on from AP as well. You know, being with the Dodgers, it, it kind of pulled me away from AP a little bit. Um, and even though I thought I would, I thought I would retire from athletes performance, no doubt. And so after, you know, time with the, with the LA Dodgers and, and being the head athletic trainer there and being vice president of athletes performance, th those are just two jobs someone should not have at the same time. Um, <laughs> they, they Except so that you can look back and say that afterwards. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought I could do it. You know, we all think we're invincible. <laughs> and I, you know, I think I did it. And I, I think I, 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 I did as best as I could at the time with the knowledge that I had and the experience I had at the time. Um, but I, I burnt myself out. I mean, I would work all morning on athletes performance stuff. I would get to the field at noon. I would work all day you know, with that stuff during batting practice, I'd be on the phone, different phone calls. And then, you know, at night, I mean, it was just, I mean, I was working a hundred to 120 hour work weeks every week for two years. And so after, um, 
you know, after my contract ended with the Dodgers, I, I just, just was burnout. And, and I ended up leaving both positions and really thinking I committed career suicide. I'm like, I am leaving two of the best positions there are in the country. Like, how stupid am I? Um, but I was so burnt out <laughs> that I just really didn't have another choice. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I wasn't happy about leaving either position. I just, it was one of those things where you just knew, I just knew I had to do it. Um, and it was scary and it was awful. And I cried a lot (laughs) and, um, just had no idea if it was going to work out, but I knew I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. So I ended up leaving both positions. Um, and you know, I think it worked out. I've been okay. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, it was, it was by far one of the scariest things I've ever done. And especially because, I mean, I had had a job, I had had a paycheck every two weeks since I was 16. Mm. So, you know, to go from working for organizations and getting paychecks and benefits to now being by myself and having to figure out, you know, how was I going to make money? And where are my benefits going to come from? And what, is, what did that look like? That was just a huge thing that, you know, I never went to business school. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about owning my own business. And so to really have to figure that out from the ground was terrifying on days. It's still terrifying. <laughs> well, let's, let's walk through that, that leap of faith, because there's lots of people who go through that at different points in their lives. I mean, you know, it's not unusual that somebody gets into a position like you were in and then makes a decision. Maybe it's not the best thing for their, their life or their health and well-being. A, how did you, how did you finally wrestle yourself into making that decision? And B, um, you know, what, when you look back with your glasses on now, you know, how did that decision contribute to who you are now or may help you be who you are now? Yeah, I, um, you know, I think that it, it was one of those things where I turned 40 and I was looking back, you know, and, and although I had had amazing experiences and I met amazing people and I got to do things that, that very few people in this world get to do, um, I had missed out on a lot of stuff as well, family and friend wise, you know, um, my, my dad had passed away when I was 30 and, um, he, um, you know, you just over those times when you're, when you're working, you just, you miss out on a lot of funerals. You miss out on weddings. You miss out on reunions. You miss out on going to lunch with your friends. You miss out on, you miss out on a lot of daily life and it gets replaced with amazing opportunities and amazing things. So I don't want it to ever to come across like that. I didn't enjoy my time working that much because I really did at the time, but really, it just got to the point where I was like, I need to, I need to make a life shift here. Like, Mm -hmm. like this is no longer, um, fulfilling every like hierarchical need (laughs) that I have. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to, wanted to, to make that change and kind of have a little bit better, um, of a work-life balance, right? And little did I know that when you work for yourself, you work 10 times harder than when you work for somebody else, but that's a different part of the story. <laughs> You're figuring that one out now, nice. <laughs> that one out in a really tough lesson. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was, 
Yeah, it was just kind of one of those one of those decisions where it was like I just need a major change in my life, and I and I need to start to put some friends and family first, um, which you know I think is something that we really do, and it's okay, right? Like there's there, everything has its season, and when you're in your 20s and 30s, like that was my season to do that stuff with, and and I don't think any of my family or friends begrudge that, right? Like that was just the time that it was my time to do that, mm-hmm. you know. But now that I'm in my 40s, like. I want to go to lunch with my friend on a Tuesday morning and have a mimosa, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, So it's just sort of one of those things, right? We all sort of shift through our lives and, and, and I think um, just kind of have been in a different season and sort of approaching a different season as well. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the, the woman in sport part of this whole thing. I mean, I I think for younger women out there who aspire to do what you did or, for women who are in it right now and experiencing it, you know, you were, as I said, a pioneer in that. What was that experience like to walk into a major league dressing room, to work in that environment, to sort of set your, your, your mark and space as a female in that environment? And, and how did you um, put your, your flag in the ground and, and make it all work? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if I did necessarily. I like to think that I, I, I did. <laughs> You know, they, they say the person who breaks the glass ceiling is the one that ends up with shards of glass all over her face, right? Like it wasn't definitely not the easiest time in my life for sure. But I think that um, it's, it's one of those things where I've kind of always been one of the only females in the room, unfortunately, right? Like even at Athletes Performance at the time, like it was all guys and and we had females obviously in, in, um, in grad school. But once I kind of got to, to athletes performance. It was all guys. I was the only girl. And, um, you know, we trained, unfortunately, very few female athletes because unfortunately women don't get paid as much as the male athletes do. So it's, you know, the, the Mia hams and the, you know, those people are few and far between. And so a lot of female athletes couldn't really afford to come train with us. So we trained pretty much 95% male athletes. So I was always just used to being around men constantly. And so it didn't really, I don't know, it didn't really, I didn't really think about it, which I know sounds super naive, but I really didn't. And I think part of the reason that I didn't think about it was because I had really, really strong women in my life, right? Like my mom is one of the strongest women I know. My aunt Marie, my dad's sister, I mean, she was an Italian Catholic woman and she converted to Judaism in the forties, right? Like that didn't happen. And she moved away from home with her husband and like, and that just didn't happen back then. Right. But she had her own path and that's what she was going to do. And my grandma was super strong. And then at UNC, I had these amazing women mentors and CB Lynn and, and, um, Sally Mays and Meredith Peshauer. Like they were these amazing athletic training women or women who are athletic trainers and, and they were just killing it at the division one level. So it, it never occurred to me. And I know, again, that sounds naive, but it never occurred to me that I couldn't do something because I was female. So I didn't even think about it when I was the only girl in the room. It sometimes I noticed it, but I didn't really think about it. It wasn't something I thought about it as much as I thought about my eye color, right? Like, oh, I can't do that because I have blue eyes. Like, like you never think that, right? Yeah. So, it, so well, yeah. Well, maybe that's the secret at the end of the day is that, you know, you didn't have that expectation. So Yeah, I just, I just really didn't. I didn't think about it. And so, you know, when they, when we had talked about taking the job, um, 
again, we, t- we briefly talked about the fact that, that I would be the first female, but clearly that's not why I took the job. Um, but it was something that was mentioned and I really thought it was going to be like a 15 minutes of fame thing. I thought it would be a, a nice little story and then it would move on. And I remember that morning when it was announced, my phone was going crazy and everyone was like, you're on ESPN, you're on ESPN. I'm like, what are you talking about? And it was on the ticker on the bottom of the ticker. And it was LA Dodgers are set to hire Sue Falsoni and she'll be the first female. And I was like, oh, this might be a bigger deal than I anticipated. Like I, I, again, naively just didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. Um, And yeah, I mean, my experience during that time um, was not always easy. I mean, the athletes were the easiest, right? Like the athletes don't care if you are purple, right? Like they don't, they don't care if you can help them feel better. Um, that's all they care about. Mm-hmm. And if you've got their back and, and you can give them ethical solutions to help improve their performance or decrease their pain, that's all they care about. And so, you know, to have success early on with some of those guys, um, they were the easiest. And a lot of the guys had, you know, female athletic trainers in high school or in college. So to them, it really wasn't a big deal. Um, and I think that it was a mutual respect. Like I respected their space as much as they respected mine. I didn't hang out in their dressing room, right. Or in their clubhouse. I went in there when I needed to, and I delivered the message I needed to deliver. And then I got out like, Oh, of course. Right. Like we're going to get a phone call. In the middle of that. So sorry about that. No. I've got everything turned off, but I can't turn off my volume. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> no worries. Um, but yeah, like I respected their space and again, like didn't hang out in there. I, I delivered the message I needed to deliver and I got out. And I think in return, they respected my space, right? They mm-hmm. showed up in the athletic training room dressed and, you know, they knew I was in there and, um, they, uh, yeah. So I just think yeah. it was a respect. I didn't expect them to totally change who they were and what their space meant to them just because I was around. And I think because I didn't have that expectation, I, you know, I can't expect 30 men to change how they act because I'm present. Um, I needed to respect their space. And sometimes I would remove myself from situations if I didn't want to hear the story being told or if I didn't want to. Right. But mm-hmm. they, they knew that they had their space in their clubhouse and, and I respected that. So I think it really comes down to having that mutual respect. I need to, I need to change a little bit who I am and where I am and what I'm doing because of them. And, and just like they needed to do that for me. And so I think because I was willing to do that for them, they were willing to do it for me. That's awesome. I, yeah, I, I supervised uh, a number of young athletic we call it athletic therapy in Canada candidates coming up and I'm actually proud to say a couple of the gals that I supervised that ended up being first first women in pro sports in Canada one of them was with the Montreal Canadiens when I was with the Canadiens another one was with actually the head therapist for the the CFL team in Montreal the Alouettes and my advice has always been you know care you respect yourself respect the environment and you're going to be fine because the, as you said the guys at the end of the day they just want to make sure that they're healthy and well be their well-being is taken care of and if you're doing it the I've never really seen guys who are disrespectful if, if the woman carried herself, you know, professionally and respectfully herself, you know, so what what would be your, your, if you were going to give out two, uh, two or one or whatever pearls of wisdom to some younger women who were walking into those environments now, what would you say? Yeah. I I mean, 
it kind of sounds like dumb advice, but I, you know, don't, don't think about it. <laughs> like, don't think about what you can and cannot do because you're a woman. Like I never thought I could or could not do something because I was a woman. I just, I, I, there were re- other reasons I thought I could or could not do something, right? Because of my skill or because of my experience or because of, right, those sorts of things. And so those things I can, I can change, right? Like I can alter my experience. I can alter my skill set. I can up, I can upscale something that I'm missing. And so those were always the things that I focused on. And even, you know, there's times, I mean, even to this day, like there's a couple opportunities I haven't gotten. Um, and I'm a little bit convinced I didn't get them because I'm a woman, but you know, I choose to not dwell on those because there's plenty of people who will give me opportunities because I'm a woman. And, and so I just choose to not dwell on the negativity of it and the, the organizations that wouldn't give me an opportunity um, for whatever reason. And, you know, that's fine. Like I posted a thing on my, um, on my social media a few weeks ago, right? You could be the juiciest, ripest peach in the world. And there's always someone going to be someone who doesn't like peaches, right? So it's just a matter of. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) What would you say was your toughest moment in pro sport? Do you remember something that was, you know, offhand that was really difficult for you to deal with a a case, a situation or whatever? Um, Yeah, I'm trying to think like there was definitely a couple tough moments. and, And I think that, a lot of it, um, oh gosh, there's a couple tough moments. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. I'm like, which one do I want to share right now? Uh, but yeah, there's definitely tough moments from whether it's life lesson type stuff or whether it was a case, right? And I think one of the most difficult things to manage um, when you're working in particularly professional sport, but I think when you're working at any sport level, because I mean, college and high school, I mean, the high school level is as crazy as professional sport right now, I think, but like making sure you stick to your ethical decision-making based on, um, based on your patient. Right. And so we can't, it can be really easy, right. When you're faced with, you know, you're in the NLCS and I'm is your coach and, you know, you got to tell them that someone's not available, right? But if someone's not available, they're not available. It doesn't matter if they're in high school. It doesn't matter if it's day one of the season. It doesn't matter if it's game, you know, game seven of the NLCS. Like, they're not available. They're going to hurt themselves more if they go and play. So they're not available. And I think it's really, I think sometimes people, that's tough. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, but I'm saying you've got to continue to be ethical no matter what level you're at and make sure that you're making the right decision for the patient and to not get caught up in the game that is around you. And like I said, I mean, the high school level at this point is just as crazy, right? Parents can be really, really intense with what their kid is doing and wanting to send the kids back out. And so I I think to always kind of remain true to that ethical decision-making about the patient that's in front of you, um, which I think given the scenarios that people are in, that's not always easy to do. What do you uh, think separates the best athletes from the rest of the, the rest in your opinion, after being in so so many performance environments? Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, the biggest thing that separates guys out is they're just, just being absolutely tenacious in their schedule. Um, like the best athletes that I've worked with, they, they know exactly what they're going to do on Monday. 
They know exactly what they're going to do Tuesday. Wednesday is going to be an off day or recovery day. Thursday is going to be this, right? Like they have it all mapped out. And even within the day, they wake up at 9 a.m. They're going to have this for lunch. Like one of, you know, some of the pitchers that I've worked with, it's like game day. They get to the field at one o'clock. They have a turkey sandwich. The turkey sandwich has lettuce and tomato on it. They eat that at, you know, 120. At 310, they begin this, right? At four, and they have their schedule mapped out. Um, And yeah, the greatest athletes that I've worked with, that is the level of planning and the level, level of dedication that they have. And they're willing to make a change if needed, obviously. Um, but they're, they're so dialed in, right? Like from exactly what they're going to eat um, to, to exactly when they're going to train and how they're going to train. Um, that it's like those guys, they're pretty impressive. Mm. Really, really impressive. What did you learn about your craft from an athlete or athletes in general? Like, Obviously, they push us to be better. So how would you say that that working with some of these guys and gals in your career pushed you to be better? Yeah, I they definitely have. I mean, some of the, the people that I've worked with, um, right, really challenged me. Like you said, it's like, hey, I've got this strain and I'm going to be out for four to six weeks. We better make it four weeks and not six weeks, right? So to constantly be pushing. Yes, <laughs> got it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> magic um, wand please <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely let me just wave that over your hand uh, but to like okay like what are all the ethical things we can do to push that closer to four weeks right not only my manual therapy but like being um open to um working with other people right like hey it's not all about me I'm not the be all and end all clinician. So you know what? Let's get a chiropractor in here and let's see what they can do to help you feel better. Let's get the nutritionist in here. Let's map out your anti-inflammatory diet and let's make sure that you're dialed in from there. Let's get in the sleep specialist and make sure that you're sleeping and getting the recovery that you need. So when you come in to do your work, right? Like just to optimize their entire environment and to bring in other professionals and really have to put my ego aside and say... I'm not the best at all of these different things. Like, let's get the strength coach in here. What are the other things that we can be doing for his upper body, for his back, for his core, for his other leg? Like, what are the other things we can be doing to make sure we minimize muscle mass loss and to make sure that we're, we're maintaining weight and to do all that stuff and maintaining power production in the entire body? Like, all of that stuff, you, you simply can't be the best expert at every single one of those things I just mentioned. We can speak to it all. Um, but you've got to be willing to put your ego aside and, and to call in the best team and to create the best team in the best interest of the athlete. And I think that that's really one of the things that I've learned from them is, is, you know, play nice with others because it's really, it's not about me. It's about them. Um, and so you've really got to put that ego aside and be willing to do that. And it's not easy. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, um, but it's a necessary thing to do. Yeah, it's one of the things that a lot of practitioners struggle with, for sure. Um, let's talk about that for just a second. What, you know, I often counsel some uh, younger people in my industry because they have a hard time with the concept of referring to somebody else when they're struggling with something. You know, maybe talk about your mindset when you've, you're looking at something and you know that you can deal with it to a degree, but you want to shift gears. How do you... How do you move in that direction and how have you created uh, the right referral network for you to be successful? 
Yeah. When you're, when you're in an organization, sometimes it's a bit easier because in, especially in this day and age, so many organizations have nutritionists and they have a strength coach and they have a chiropractor and they have an internist and they have a physical therapist and athletic trainer, right? Like everybody's sort of right there. So it's really easy to do that within your team. Uh, but when you're not within an, an organization like that, you've got to create your own network. And so depending on like, for me, my patient population is nationally, which means I might have a patient call me and say, Hey, I'm in Dallas and I need help right? I, I better have a clinician that I know in Dallas who can help my patient. So, you know, I think you need to be able to reach out within your network and learn what other people are doing. So whether that's locally, if you're locally, um, or it's more nationally, but, but really kind of reach out and take the time to go meet people and figure out, right? Every, just like you can find a bad physical therapist and a good physical therapist, you can find a bad strength coach and a good strength coach. And so you've got to go out and, and find people that match your treatment philosophy and your approach and that they're going to be willing to sort of work with you. Right. And unfortunately everyone's not willing to work with everybody, but that takes time and it takes effort. And, you know, it's sort of one of those things where it's like, all right, well, you know, do I want to go to, do I want to go to lunch by myself and, and read a magazine or do I want to pick up the phone and see if this guy who I don't know wants to meet me for lunch to see if we have a good mix, right? So you've really got to put yourself out there and introduce yourself. People very rarely come knocking on your door, um, but they're thrilled when you come knocking on their door, right? And so to kind of like ask them, right? Seek to understand, like that's the approach I always take, like seek to understand what that person is about and what they bring to the table. And then, you know, eventually people will, ask you your thoughts um, and what your belief system is. But if you really put yourself out there, take the initiative to meet people and then seek to understand what they're about, um, you're probably going to create yourself a really, really cool network. And, it, and it, it's going to take time and it takes a lot of effort. But once you have it, then it's like, pick up the phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone, you know, you, you've got your network, which is really cool. I'm going to use that moment to segue to one of the things that I do in my podcast. I found a book a few years ago. I'm not an astrology nut, but I like astrology. And I um, actually found my purpose in this book. It was called The Day You Were Born. And it combined, it was by a name, woman named Linda Joyce who combined astrology with numerology. And I actually found this neat chapter and it talked about me as a Sag and, and the day I was born and stuff. And it connected with my purpose. So to each person I have on my podcast, I read them their purpose from this book. Now it may or may not come across to you the way uh, I want to see whether there's any synergy or not. So you're an okay. Aries, you're an Aries too. Your purpose is to transform your fears and weaknesses into strengths through understanding them and sharing them with others. Mirror, mirror on the wall is who I see you or me. This is the question every Aries 2 asks each morning. They face the challenge of recognizing their own feelings and not confusing them with those of others. Remember, the world is fickle. It loves and rejects according to its needs, not our deeds. There is no way to please it, so the Aries 2 must learn to please and nurture themselves. To do this, they've got to bond with others without becoming dependent and separate without feeling abandoned or alone. Resonate or not for you? Totally resonates. <laughs> Absolutely resonates. Cool. Yep. It's funny. So. Eight out of ten times that I read that, the person goes, "Oh God, I got chills." It was kind of freaky. So. Yep. Absolutely. <clears throat> I definitely can can do some of those things as far as like, yeah, yeah, 
Well, I'll tell you the story, but I don't do it all the time because I don't want the, every podcast to be enraptured on the thing. But <clears throat> for many years, I had the, say, the saying, some men see things as they are and say, why I dream things that never were taped to my desktop. And I went through a divorce, uh, my second divorce, and I was in this bookstore in New York and I picked up this book, The Day You Were Born. So I flip it to the Sag page and I start looking at Sag 3. And the thing reads my purpose and it was like, whoa, wow, that's exactly who I am kind of thing. And then the first line in the descriptor was that saying, some men see things as they are and say, why I dream things that never were and say, why not? And I had had this tape to my desktop for the last 15 years before that. So that's why it became sort of a piece for me that I do because I I was like blown off the map, uh, the connection point with it. So pretty cool. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. That's really cool. If you like yeah. it, it's, it's called The Day You Were Born by Linda Joyce. But anyways. The Day You Were Born. All right, yeah. cool. Um, so let's, let's um, kind of with the last little part of, of this, I want to talk about your decision to write a book. Um, again, compliments to you for doing that because it's not an easy journey, I'm sure. Um, tell us about that journey, why you decided to do it, what the book's about, what, what your mission is now with that book. Yeah, um, Gosh, why did I want to write the book? I can't even remember anymore. There, well, there was a time where I can't remember. <laughs> Somebody was like, why are you writing a book? I'm like, I have no idea. I feel like this is the worst professional decision I've ever made. Like, I was stupid. <laughs> um, and I'm still having a little, like, trauma from it. So <laughs> people are like, oh, it's so great. You have a book. I'm like, yeah, it's really great. <laughs> But yeah, it was, it was two years, two hard years Mm. um, of a lot of writing and a lot of edits, you know, Lurie Draper is my editor and publisher and she is a rock star. She's an absolutely amazing woman and someone so amazing to work with. Um, And yeah, I mean, I wanted to write the book Um, kind of looking back now. I think I can recognize why I wanted to write it. Um, But I wanted to write it because I I felt like there was a need in the field. I think that you can find a lot of really good rehab books and you can find a lot of really good strength conditioning books. And I, I thought that at least at the time, there was really no book that really tried to bridge those two areas. And I just crossed my fingers that a book didn't come out over the course of two years that would do that. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I felt like there was, I felt like there was a hole that I, I wanted to fill um, within the, um, within the um, field. And it's something I'm passionate about. It's definitely something that I live pretty much every day to kind of bridge those two things. And, and so, yeah, I just felt really, really passionate about it. And, and one of the things I knew it was going to do was it was going to help solidify the organizational system within my brain. Um, which it did for sure. And so there were times when, you know, those first four, I mean, it literally was, I think my fourth edit before I got something positive back from Lurie. <laughs> like the first three edits were just, you know, this doesn't make any sense. This goes into so much detail that it takes over the book. You need to chop it in half. This is a great conclusion. It's not your introduction. You need to rewrite a conclusion. And it was just like all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And even like, and she was so great. She's like, okay. And she would, she would say in her email exactly what would happen. She's like, you're going to read this. You might cry. Just put it aside for a week. Don't even look at it. She's like, come back to it in 10 days. And in 10 days, she would send, and I did, I would read it. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to publish this book. And I would put it away for 10 days. And in 10 days, I'd get an email. 
okay, today's the day you're supposed to open the book up, start with the little things, do this, this, and this. And, and she was great. She's like, this is the point where people stop. This is the point where people have the potential for a good book and it sits in their desk drawer for five years. She's like, don't stop, keep going. And she just really kind of kept pushing and pushing. And, and um, I think she helped me create a really, really, a really, really great piece that I'm really proud of. And I think that it, it flows. It was tough to, because to, I feel like the voice changes, right? Because the beginning of the book is more rehabby. The end of the book is more strength and conditioning. And I really wrote it to sort of flip those two things. Like, I feel like a strength and conditioning coach is going to get a ton out of the beginning of the book. And I feel like a clinician is going to get a ton out of the end of the book. And so to really sort of flip the audience a little bit and flip the voice was really difficult to do to maintain consistency throughout the book. And I think that she, she really helped me, helped me do that. So. That's awesome. Good for you for doing it. Uh, making it happen. I'm sure it becomes kind of like your baby. And uh, then when you finally have to push it away to be published, you're like, no, I want to do it. No. <laughs> I know, like, oh gosh. What am I going to, is there like one sentence that's written off that someone's going to like nitpick for the rest of my life? Like, yeah, it's so, it was so scary. I mean, yeah, to, to send it and be like, yep, this is the final book for print. It was I thought I would be relieved and instead I was terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good on you. I mean, it's an area that uh, I'm very passionate about uh, the whole connection. I'm actually um, excited because I got asked to go down to talk at a conference for the Philadelphia 76ers, uh, New Jersey Devils. And I think, Crystal Palace are connected by one group, this guy, Dave Martin, who's their head of performance. But I'm going to meet Bill Knowles, who uh, is supposed to be quite the the personality in that industry in in the States. And so I think I'm going to meet my my mirror mirror image from Canada and the United States. So it should be a nice week and a couple of weeks from now. That's going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, So to finish here, your... um, your purpose read and you said you were sort of connected to that, that you're sort of a sensitive human being. So how do you manage that in environments that are so not sensitive? Yeah. I don't know if I manage it very well. I am. I am a very sensitive person. I take stuff so personally. And I, this, this is something in the last several years that I've worked really, really hard on. Um, cause it's tough, right? When you take on everybody's emotions as your own, you know, the minute someone says something hateful, right? There's, there could be 20 comments on just positivity. And like, I end up reeling in on the one negative thing, right? Because like, I take that, that thing on. And so, yeah, I've worked really, really hard to, um, to not take things personally, right? So much of it, especially with, with athletes and patients and some of the situations that I've been in with athletes, like none of it's about me, right? It's all about other people, Mm. right? So whether I, you know, get brought in as a consultant and the people who, you know, there's some people that necessarily don't want me there. And so it's not about me, right? They don't hate me or they don't not like me. They're, unhappy with something in them, right? Like it's all about other people, right? So very few things are really about me. And same thing, like when people are hateful and I've said this to myself, I'm like, 
not everybody's going to like your book. So mm. you better be ready <laughs> for people to pick it apart. And you need to be able to take the constructive criticism and weed out the haters. And that's really, really hard for me to do. Mm. Um, it's something I work on constantly um, to try to not let other people's things, right, get, get to try to not absorb that stuff. It's, it's about them. It's not usually about me. So, mm. um, yeah, all I can do is is put out my material, right? Like, and, and at least I'm putting it out there. Like a lot of people don't put their stuff out there. So it's really easy for people to, to kind of, to kind of bash what you're doing. It's like, Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just sharing what I do. Like you don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be what you do. I'm just sharing what I do. Mm -hmm. So to try to really sort of remove the emotion from it is something in the last few years I've really, really worked hard on. And some days I'm better at it than others, but it's something that I continue to pursue. No doubt. Good for you. I'm just uh, reading now by audiobook, The F Fifth Agreement. Uh, I don't know if you ever read The Four Agreements. Yeah, I read The Four uh, Agreements. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's a new one called The Fifth Agreement. So it's a good read, good uh, review of those things. So thinking about that today. So last question for you. Um, you know, when you perish from this earth, as you will one day, we all will, but hopefully not for a very long time. Uh, how would you like people to remember you? That's a great question. I don't know if I've really thought about this before. Um, you know, I, I hope that people would think of me um, as someone who's friendly, right? And as someone who cares um, about others, right? And who tried to not necessarily make it about herself. Um, and I would hope that, that people would think I tried to have a little bit of fun in this world <laughs> and not take myself too seriously or kind of take it all too seriously, um, overall. And, uh, and yeah, someone as, as who was hopefully kind, uh, and understanding. So those are, those are kind of my key hopes. Cool. Well, it's been fantastic to spend an hour with you. Thank you for uh, donating your time. It's much appreciated. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I love the concept of this podcast and sort of what you're doing. So thanks so much for wanting me on. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You too.